0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Addiction Audio, the podcast from the journal Addiction. Uh, Now in a first for this podcast we're talking um, about drones, um, which rarely get to feature in addiction science but but doing this paper which i'm delighted about the paper we're discussing is called an evaluation of naloxone transit for opioid overdose using drones a case study using real world coroner data i've got three people who worked on the study i've got dr caroline copeland from the national program on substance abuse deaths i've got dr paul royal from the institute of pharmaceutical science king's college london and dr caroline copeland is also from that institute and university and there's dr Patrick Courtney from Drone Matlab Limited. Uh, three distinct areas of expertise that were needed for this, uh, this study. So uh, Paul, Patrick and Caroline, welcome to Addiction Audio.
1: Thank you. Pleasure.
0: Uh, nice to be here. Um, so this is uh, fascinating research exploring the use of drones to transport uh, naloxone uh, to help prevent overdoses. Now until I read this paper I hadn't even entertained the idea that this kind of thing would be a possibility. How did you first uh, stumble on this idea? What made you first think uh, that this was uh, feasible, worth studying and even uh, a thing that might exist in in the world?
2: Well, I think it started when I first joined the Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences here at at King's and Paul, who's always had an interest in drones uh, came to my like inaugural welcome to the department uh, talk and collared me immediately afterwards, um, because he wanted some of the data that um, the the National Programme on Substance Abuse Deaths hold, which is what we used uh, in this um, this study eventually, uh, which was uh, deaths um, due to opioid use where there had been bystanders present. And we needed a bystander to be there because of course um, you need someone there to call for help and then administer uh, naloxone if it was to arrive.
3: Yeah, it was um, the, the the data that um, uh, Caroline presented just seemed sort of perfect for the development of a use case for sort of um, the use of drones to deliver emergency medicines. Because in order to prove a use case, you need to do some modelling. You need to look at the safety, and you need to look also look at the benefits of applying a drone. And a drone can get to a precise location very quickly. But it's also affected by things like rain, wind, temperature. And with that database, we had location of need, but also time and date. So we could retrospectively have a look at the weather conditions and, th- and then do some real modelling and then simply do some races um, against the ambulance service to see where um, the drone would have benefit. and. Um, the the drone does have an impact it's not throughout the whole of the group of the cases that were presented but there was a a significant proportion where we believe the drone could get there within that seven minute um required delivery time
0: so we'll come back to that in a moment the uh the, the kind of magic seven minutes uh, that you refer to throughout this paper. But, but just so we can get a sense of, of how the three of you worked together, or the four of you, along with Christine Gooder, who is, the, who is also, also an author on this paper. But but Paul, you were saying your, your background is in um, what happens to medicines when they're taken out into the elements and transported.
3: Yeah, yeah. So I, I come from a pharmaceutics background, which is the science of taking the white powder and making it into a medicine. And if you want to introduce that to patients, you have to ensure the quality and the stability of that medicine. So I'm coming at the drone piece from being concerned about will the um, medicine get to the patient and still maintain its quality? Will it survive the trip? Um, Will it be delivered within good distribution practice? Uh, And then within that is... um, Is there a need for the for the medicine at that particular point at that particular time? And so this work sort of matched up very nicely with that. So that's kind of where I come from kind of thing. And also um, just from a researching area that it's actually people are very curious. If you if you if you start describing you, are you're delivering uh, medicines uh, to patients or or, uh, uh, people connected to them it's it's it just gets people's uh, imagination going um
0: patrick now you come into the kind of you introduced yourself to me earlier as um as being on the robotic side of things can you can you just briefly talk about where your expertise comes into this study
1: yeah my background comes from the laboratory environment where there's increasing use of robotics and there's interesting dynamic between the robotic suppliers and the and the users of biologists and the chemists in the lab and i've been working with paul uh for a few years now over trying to go beyond that and, and drones is a new type of robot that people are talking a lot about you see a lot in the media uh but how these could be used for medicines delivery is a relatively new area there's some good work going on in uh in africa delivering blood for example but emergency medicines like this in the loxone case is a brings in a whole new set of parameters so we're exploring what it means for drones to be used are drones are credible? tools to use this, what are the constraints and also communicating within the community the drones people don't know this area and the practitioners in this area don't know what drones are capable of. I think one of the amazing things about this paper
0: is is that there are these three, at least three distinct areas of expertise that have been brought together for, for what is a really compelling study. Now Caroline um, you, uh, you work we've d- we've talked about NPSAD sad before but like for people who aren't familiar perhaps this uh, can you give us a kind of brief overview of of that data set and uh, uh, and how it can be used
2: yeah, so the the national program on substance abuse deaths or the np sad is reported to voluntarily by coroners across england wales and northern ireland and the data that we get uh, regarding uh, drug related deaths from these coroners it's either um, deaths directly um, related to drug use, so concluded as a drug related death, or those um, concluded, uh, such as things like suicide or uh, road traffic collision, where there might have been drug use prior to those circumstances occurring. Uh, and the data that we get is very detailed. So, in addition to the record of inquest, which includes the causes of death, the manner of death, um, basic decedent demographics. We also get uh, the toxicology reports, Uh, we often get uh, witness statements from attending police or paramedics or um, witnesses at the scene. That means that there's a very rich set of data that can be interrogated. And for this uh, project it was important to understand not just that somebody had died of an opioid overdose but the proportion of people that actually had someone there that would be able to call for help and the precise time and uh, that those were happening as well as, as Paul has said. Uh, we needed to know the time to look back at what the weather conditions were and also the, the traffic conditions as well. So the mp was you know really suited to this because of the high granularity of data that's available. We also have a good relationship with the coroners. And so for cases where there was missing data, we were able to go back and get those additional pieces of information that were needed as well.
0: So your study looked at um, potential overdoses where where delivery of naloxone by drone uh, could potentially have have reversed that overdose in time.
2: So these were actual opioid overdoses. And that's important to highlight because... When you're looking at the figures um, at baseline with current technologies, the drones could have got to these opioid overdose locations uh, in seven minutes and the ambulances could have got there in only 14. And that sounds awful because it sounds like the ambulance service just doesn't get anywhere ever. But this is fatal opioid overdoses. So it this demonstrates that the ambulances weren't able to get there in the majority of cases in time before the patient would have died. So I think that 14% looks, um, looks really bad, but I don't think that the ambulance are that terrible at getting to these overdoses. I think they get to a lot that they, they that are then non-fatal, but because of the way that the NPSAT is populated only with deaths, we could only include those fatal overdoses uh, in, in this analysis here.
0: In order to compare these two conditions, so the amount of time it takes an ambulance to get to uh, to an overdose and the amount of time it would potentially take a drone to do so you had to estimate those ambulance call out times so uh, can you just talk us through briefly how you did that
2: so we had the locations of the overdoses themselves and we took the start points of the ambulances as the uh, the local ambulance stations now that's not necessarily what is quite true to life sometimes ambulances are are randomly roaming around a, a certain area but that was just too difficult to try and include in the modelling. So, so we used uh, the locations of uh, hospital a where the ambulances uh, might be stationed uh, because the actual ambulance station itself was located in a, t- a separate town many kilometres away. Uh, but we started the drones from the same locations as the ambulances as well. Uh, and we also had additional drone locations on uh, fire stations as well. Uh, But it was a it was a race then. So we looked at the precise um, traffic conditions because you can look retrospectively on Google to see what they were at the time. And the same uh, with various weather um, channels. You can have a look back and see what the actual wind conditions, the temperature uh, and the um, precipitation, if any, was happening as well.
0: So people may people are likely to be familiar with the kinds of things that uh, that hold up ambulances in getting to call out traffic conditions, as you've mentioned. But can you talk us through the kind of considerations that you need to look at when estimating how long it would take a drone to, to do cover a similar distance?
3: So um, uh, essentially, um, a drone should be able to travel in a straight line. However, if it's passing over, say, a prison, um, a school, or a hospital, we may have to divert the route there. So we kind of did a a little bit of that. But more importantly, things like the weather. So the direction of the wind was really important. So um, we we modeled with the wind conditions on the day. And so if you can imagine, if you have a tailwind, it pushes your drone a little bit quicker so you can arrive a little bit sooner. If you have a headwind, it's going to hold it back. We used a little bit of aviation software then to actually um, look at the effect of winds at different angles as well, using sort of simple sort of vector uh, trigonometry. So that's the flight bit. So then we've got the sort of takeoff. It takes about a minute for your drone to make sure it's connected um, to um, uh, the satellite uh, communications, um, uh, uh, you know, the the, the, the 5G. So it can actually then start to navigate and track its journey. Um, It's also got to um, uh, get off the ground and fly. Um, And we're modeling things at at a roughly about sort of, um, I think about 20 uh, meters in the air. Um, And then um, it flies to the destination. And again, we've got to have a little bit of time for the um, drone to land, um, and now the next bit about consideration is where to land. So, in the modelling data that we um, did, and we and we and we use Google Maps essentially, and the and the quality of the images is is quite impressive. So. Um, We could then actually have a look at the area around the location. Was there a a piece of uh, land where we could um, uh, uh, make our um, drone come down and land safely? If it was um, a a masonette or or, um, a a sort of tower block, you know, which entrance could we land uh, closely to? Um, We had to avoid things like trees, uh, we had to avoid um, locations where there was no convenient place to land. But the actual um, data that we did use, we managed to get the drone to land within about ten meters of the front door um, or of the person's location that was highlighted um, in the narrative.
0: Just for a sense of kind of how that might uh, how might that that might look. So, if if I'm at the other end uh, and a drone approaches, is, I mean is the naloxone contained on the end of a piece of string? Is someone talking to me from the drone? Like how does the kind of end user kind of understand what's going on so that they can quickly then then
3: use the naloxone? And uh... that's a really good um, question. So of course, um, the cases that we're considering a bystander is present. So they're in communication um, with the emergency services with uh, via a call handler. And um, so they are being um, given instructions in what to do and how to safely interact uh, with the drone. Um, And as the drone comes in, um, we've got the ability to use, because remember the drone is not autonomously flying, it's flying using um, a remote pilot. So the, um, the, the communication systems, essentially the camera on board of the drone, can make a visual assessment as it's getting near its landing site in terms of making sure that the area is safe. You haven't got, you know, lots of people um, running around and that information can be relayed back to the uh, call handler and therefore instructions can be given. The initial design um, that we came up with was a a, a sort of a cargo uh, transport box on top of the drone um, whereby the drone lands uh, and then the bystander can remove the um, naloxone home kit or the naloxone uh, nasal spray from the top of that um, transport uh, holder. Um, and at that point, we then follow uh, the guidance and recommendations of um, the at-home naloxone or nasal spray. So there's um, guidance from the call handler, but also the uh, the patient's instructions that's in the um, um, uh, packaging of uh, naloxone. In the initial approach, we haven't um, gone for a a sort of winching down of uh, the naloxone because that adds extra mass um, to the drone. But we've also got the case, then we have to design something, a line that's kind of semi breakable, because, of course, if somebody gives a good tug on the drone, then they pull the drone down on top of themselves. And um, also, if we start dropping um, the naloxone, you know, a good gust of wind could blow that a little bit of distance from uh, our patient so our design is the drone lands in proximity to the bystander the bystander walks to the drone and the guidance of the call handler and then removes the uh, naloxone from the cargo box so uh, patrick
0: with your involvement in this in this project were there any uh, technical or kind of robotic considerations that you that you'd not come across before that, that you needed to problem solve in order for this to become feasible
1: so I think the uh, one of the main ones is around operation outdoors. So we touched earlier on the weather. Uh, you, you see pictures of drones in the press and it's a blue sky, a single drone, no rain. And the reality isn't like that at all. So being able to navigate in, in headwinds, working out how to manage that uh, is, is a new area. It's not new for the drone people, but um, it is new for robotics. And we talked earlier on, on about um, line of sight. It's the pilot who's in control and knowing that they need to navigate close to buildings, close to gardens, close to where people really are living, these are these are quite new uh, new areas.
0: How bad the conditions have to be before you know your drone pilot says actually we can't do this?
3: The specifications of the drones that we were um, using uh, at about the cutoff's offs about uh, 28 miles per hour in terms of wind speeds. Um, but um, we've trialled takeoff and landing at up to thirty-five uh, miles an hour. Um, the the issues there are if you're high enough and away from objects, your drone can very easily cope with with high winds it slows its journey down as i said before if it's a if it's a headwind if it's if it's a tailwind it speeds it up but it's it's landing under control so very very strong gusts of wind can blow the drone onto objects onto the bystander onto a tree or, or or whatever's near nearby but as drone um sort of technology is developing not in this study because we were looking at the feasibility of of this approach, but ongoing work here are are, are thinking about encasing the drones in cages. So if there is a a slight movement and there's a collision, it doesn't um, present any danger to life. Um, The the way that the the drone is actually sort of powered as well. So instead of having um, say uh, four rotors, some drones can have up to eight and they can configure things in different ways. Um, and so, yeah, wind is a problem, but we're quite confident as the data that we presented, um, you know, the, 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 the number of um, successful potential su- successfully um, successful drone flights um, took account of those of those gusting winds. And there wasn't there wasn't a great deal of of impact in terms of reducing the likelihood. So that's sort of 78% of those drone cases with bystanders. That was based on taking account of, um, of the high winds. One of the reasons why we selected Hartlepool is because it presents interesting weather. It's near the sea. You've got a bit of um, semi-urban and you've got sort of urban at the background. So it is a place in, in, in the UK that does have a reasonable amount of wind and some, and some rain as well. So it was a good place to trial it. Um, So you've mentioned
0: this before about kind of the 78% and the 14%, but um, can you kind of outline uh, your findings? Uh, Again, this was a feasibility trial. I mean, the broad outline was that, yes, this looks feasible, but, but what were some of the details of your results there?
2: Well, I don't know if I am surprised about it, but I was expecting that some of the people that had died in a hostel might have had naloxone there already. But this was twenty fifteen to twenty nineteen was the the five year period that we looked at. And I think now if we were to do the same again in more recent time, there might be more naloxone already in the hostels. so I, I thought I was surprised that they had to call for help to get the naloxone. Um, and I hope that wouldn't be the case now. I think there's more take-home naloxone around um, than there is now. So I was surprised about that finding. Um, I was also surprised, I I think, about the number of people that actually had a bystander indicated as present, uh, where we actually had a narrative provided. It was only 25% of cases, I think, uh, which is a lot lower than uh, other studies. I know there was one about um, opioid users in London that was published in the mid-2000s. And there it was indicated that there was, I think, 60-ish percent of people um, we're using drugs in the presence of others. So I'm not quite sure what's happened there in terms of a reduction. Is it, is it you know, a, lot, a lot of the harm reduction messaging is, you know, go slow, don't use alone. But looking at that, it looks like there are more people using alone that I was a bit surprised about. I know that's not a finding of the drones necessarily, but it was something in the study that I thought was quite interesting. So. I was also surprised that I think there was one case in the mental health hospital and they didn't have naloxone on site. They had to call for an ambulance for that to be delivered. And I was really surprised at that as well.
3: I think, I think one of the points that I was really interested in that the, the number of cases um, where a bystander was present, um, you know, that was about 58 in our small study in the sort of Tyne Tees and Hartlepool area. Um, But, you know, um, we had a number of about 45, or not about 45 um, cases where the drone would have arrived um, uh, within seven minutes, you know, um, and that was including a two minute extra. So essentially the flight time was five minutes and we took two minutes for landing takeoff and for the um, uh, bystander to get hold of the naloxone. And that was incorporating the weather because this is the benefit of using uh, that um, coroner's data is we got a better feel of the impact of the sort of real world conditions. And that was really surprising. So even though the bystander population was relatively small compared to the the number of cases where um, people had, had had fatal overdoses, of that, there was a, 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 you know, a significantly large proportion where where the drone could have made a, an impact. And then only 13 of those cases were prohibited by, by, by the weather conditions. And simply then having more drone stations close by could have alleviated that. So it's not a, you know, it's, we made estimations, you know, a reasonable number of drone stations in um, facilities that were likely to be, you know, populated, um, you know, over a twenty-four hour period, you know, our fire stations and our um, emergency hospitals. So it was, it was really impressive. I think
0: anything that can increase the the access of naloxone to people experiencing overdose or at risk for that is has to be a good thing. Um, as ever, there's the potential for you know unwanted consequences. I mean, is is there the potential that naloxone As a substance, may not be the right thing for a call out? Or or is there the potential that by sending a drone, you may then deprioritize ambulances? Are are these things that that you need to, um, that came up at all?
2: I I don't think we are sending the drone and saying good luck. Mm -hmm. Uh, That there would be a a a chasing ambulance that would be uh, arriving as quickly as it could. Uh, The drone would just be an additional aspect to the, the care that can be given that would get there more quickly. Uh, we aren't expecting the, the bystander to uh, just be given that and um, you know, provide everything. Um, I suppose that another thing that could be useful with, with that is that, that there is a problem in this uh, country where uh, if people do overdose and there is a bystander present to call for help, Uh, It's not uncommon for that person to then leave the scene before the help arrives because they don't want to be implicated in that illegal drug taking activity. And there are people that have been convicted and sent to prison uh, for staying and helping uh, a friend who who is suffering an overdose. So maybe if this naloxone can get there before the paramedics, before any other uh, emergency services arrive, they might be encouraged to stay and at least deliver uh, the naloxone before leaving the scene
0: it's it's the kind of qualitative data that you need to understand kind of what then naturally happens when people receive this package of naloxone in a drone that's landed 10 meters from them sorry so paul
3: and, and there's some really nice sort of extra sort of discussion points on that so in terms of this study i think a couple of the reviewers mentioned this as well you know what if what if the um drone is damaged well who cares uh, we've got we, you know we've hopefully saved somebody's life and you know it's 500 pounds to replace the um the drone this study was based on commercially off-the-shelf drones so we're not we're not doing fancy um you know cutting-edge technology we're basing it on drones that you can buy uh you know at your apple shop essentially <laughs> but but are being used Um, throughout survey work already being used by the emergency services so there's you know there's hundreds of thousands of successful um, hours of flight out there in terms of getting being confident with it and of course there are decisions about you know did we fly the drone without without any lights on so we don't draw attention so you know the the naloxone can be delivered and that that feeds in perfectly to caroline's point Uh, And of course, you know, the drone itself, once it's landed, will know where it's gone to. So there's some issues about that as well. Where does that data go? But of course, then that could direct the ambulance for that last, you know, 50 meters where it could be difficult to actually find the person if they're now on their own. So yeah, there's there's some sort of unpredictable benefits, I think, with this kind of study. It's fascinating.
0: Um, Before I wrap up, is there anything that you wanted to kind of talk about that you haven't
1: so from my perspective, and it's cheeky, is it's an invitation to engage with us. So there's the paper, please read the paper, but uh, this is an ongoing program. So as much as we're able to say you're allowing us access to a, a new audience, a, bit, a broader audience, you know, we want to engage and we'd love to tell you, you know, continue this uh, interaction as the story develops from the drone perspective. Um, it's
0: amazing research. I mean, uh, on so many levels. Uh, partly because it's it's dealing with uh, with naloxone, which we've spoken about uh, a lot before, um, and preventing fatal overdoses. But also because it brings together those three distinct areas of expertise around overdose uh, fatalities, around uh, medicines and transporting them, and the robotics required to uh, to do that. Um, it's a fascinating research project, uh, an amazing paper, and I'd encourage people to read it. And uh, as Patrick said, to get in touch. So, just uh, remains for me to say thank you all for your time, uh, and I hope to see you back on the podcast in the future.
2: Great, thanks very much, Rob. Thank you, Rob.